You know the law. This is Thunderdome. Kill him. Welcome to the Mad Max Minute, where bang, bang, Maxwell's silver hammer is about to come down on Blaster's head in Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 36, which begins with Max blowing his whistle, and it ends with shouting from the peanut gallery. Here to help us talk about selectively choosing to follow the no-kill rule are Niall McGowan and John Parker from the Bat Minute 89 podcast. Oh, hello. Hello. Hopefully we will be more effective than uh, Gordon is in our movie. As podcast right. guests. Yeah. We're all here all the way from Gotham City where I can tell you we don't need another hero. All right. So. <laughs> you don't need to know the way home? Oh. Well, I mean, it helps, but like, I guess I don't need to. Like, I'll, I'll find it eventually. You can be satisfied with life beyond Thunderdome, I guess. So. <laughs> beyond Thunderdome, is that where they go? he goes out and meets the kids? No, I'm not satisfied with that, that whole segment. <laughs> You really seem to hate that part. I hate the kids. <laughs> I'm going to say it now because it's our last minute, right? I like the whole film. I think it's just that part doesn't fit with Mad Max. Mm. I think it's a good movie. It's just that it doesn't feel like part of the same series. Yeah. It feels like two separate movies. Yes. Yeah. And if they had split it into two separate movies, I think each movie could have been a good movie mm-hmm. by itself. But they chose to make it one which is a little odd. <laughs> very odd. But I like the kids. Do you I think they're very interesting. They always seem to screw up sequels like this back then, though. They have like a successful one and then kind of have too many ideas for the third one. That, that seems to be a common thing in the 80s. Okay. I just have a thing against like gangs of kids in films in general. They've never sat well with me. Like <laughs> just <Hook>. kids. <laughs> yeah. It's like I don't like Hook. Don't like the Lost Boys and Hook. It's like, no, just cut me out of that. <laughs> It's like any anything like old, you know, so many kids films like, you know, Newsies and things like this. Where I'm like, <gasps> no, I'm out, oh. man, I'm out. Even there was like a Batman animated series, which I love. And I think there's an episode, was it like The Underdwellers or something? And it's like, you know, Batman finds that he's also a gang of forgotten runaways who have been ruled. Out. And it's like. Bunch of kids don't don't care. Just I'm, I'm out. I'm out, man. <laughs> so yeah, this kind of inherent thing of just like you put any a bunch of kids. Other thing I hate is when they bring in choirs of children into like pop songs and stuff. Like you know, oh. you know like in another brick in the wall and stuff. I, I've just got a thing against mass groups of kids. Apparently, for <laughs> I don't know what it is. Yeah, maybe because I just wasn't popular in school and I just hate that. that <laughs> it reminds me too much of that. But for some reason, yeah, I'm out. I'm out of all that. So, Niall, never move next to a school. <laughs> if you can no. help it, never move next to a school. I don't, don't want to think about roving what would gangs happen. of children. <laughs> I can sympathize. I was sitting here this morning before we started recording, and there was a group of six, seven, maybe like. Eight, I'm assuming middle school aged young women walking around the neighborhood around our cul-de-sac here and I'm sitting up here in my office looking out the window and the first thing I thought is what are those dang kids doing in my cul-de-sac <laughs> <laughs> never mind they probably live here oh they probably do like they're probably here having like a sleepover or whatever kids do these days Probably these days, yeah. eating Tide Pods and I, snorting condoms. I do really but. hope, though, you were standing looking at them while, like, twitching your curtains. <laughs> Just, like, the one eyeball peering out. Like, oh, those kids. <laughs> Get off my lawn. 
<laughs> I'm glad I'm not alone then. Because yeah. I, I yes. have to say. Also, no, as soon as I, like, I see kids coming towards me in the street, I have a little bit of like, oh, oh God. You know, just have, even, have to, <laughs> even have to coordinate my way past them. It's like, oh, they could say something annoying or something. I'm a very grumpy person, as you may be uh, learning about me now. People, the, the revelation about like how grumpy a person I am. Well, and you hating <laughs> choirs of kids. I'm the same because I, like one of my favorite bands, The Clash, I love their album Sandinista. It, it, some people don't like it because it's insanely long. But it, loads of mad experiments on it. Weird music. But one of the worst things, because like, I love almost every track, but one of the worst things near the end, I think, they have a choir of children cover one of their songs from their debut album, Career Opportunities. I think it's meant to be cute. It's like, oh, these kids singing about being unable to get work. It's like, that's going to be their future. That's sad, isn't it? It's like, yeah, but I don't want to hear kids. Like, just get rid of it. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I, there's no need. There's no need. <laughs> I think it's because like school choirs are like inherently the all kind of I'm sure like some people tell me that like no there are ones that are genuinely great and stuff but like when you just you know I'm from a town that didn't have a great you know school choir and anyone I've ever seen all sounds the same and it's always like <laughs> people are just humoring these children because they like pretend that they can sing okay when they none of them can like maybe you might get one or two in the bunch who are like oh they could sing and go on to it. but usually it's just like if you can get them to harmonize in any way in any way possible it sounds you know acceptable and from that yeah it's just I'm taking this off on a weird tangent of just it makes me sound like I'm a proper wizened old man to sit <laughs> yeah yeah you sound old <laughs> this line of conversation is making me so happy because <laughs> I do not like kids either <laughs> When we were talking about the making of this movie, like the pre-planning process, we were talking about how George Miller and Terry Hayes went out to lunch. And Terry Hayes had this script idea for the story of The Waiting Ones. And so George Miller was like, I think we can wrap that up in a Mad Max story and get it out there easier. And I have to wonder if they had released Terry Hayes' script as sort of like an anthology to the Mad Max series. You know how like... The Halloween movie started off with Michael Myers and then... Oh, and like with Season of the Witch, they tried to like, no, it's a completely different movie now, yeah. Yeah, it was the third one in the series where Mm. they did Season of the Witch. And I'm willing to bet that the reason they did not spin out Terry Hayes' idea into an anthology movie is because they saw what the Halloween series had done. Two movies starring their villain Michael Myers and then a third movie anthology somewhere else. Mm. And they said, oh no, we can't do that. That would be awful. Mm. We got to keep Max in it. It's a shame that happened to Halloween, actually, because I think that's a great idea. The third one wasn't amazing or anything, but it's it's a really cool idea and you're seeing it now with like american horror story you know each season's different mm-hmm. it's that kind of thing and you could you could have easily had that with mad max you could have done other stories in that world oh absolutely i'm a, I'm a staunch defender of season of the witch though like i really love that movie <laughs> there are a lot of people that really like that yeah movie. there's huge segments of it that do drag but like the the highs of it i think are really really high like it's like the the, the ending scene is like one of the best ending scenes of any horror film i, mm. I can recall and even when i tell people about it i'm like oh this is what happens and they go like oh that does that does sound pretty cool i'm like oh it's a, it's a great movie it's definitely worth watching it's better than some of the other halloween sequels i can tell you that but <laughs> that's not hard <laughs> <laughs> now just to make sure everyone is on the same page we are not talking about the 2011 nick cage movie we're talking about the third <laughs> halloween movie but we can I, like, i'm happy to talk about <laughs> we'll, we'll do a bonus episode for you about that <laughs> I love Ron Perlman as much as the next guy, but yeah, no. (laughs) Getting back on track, though. 
We join Max. He is in the Thunderdome. He has gotten his hands on that whistle. He has started blowing it, and he continues blowing it as he rises to his feet at the beginning of this minute. And the first thing he does is he goes over and he grabs the mallet that Blaster has just dropped. Now, I can understand going for this weapon, which is relatively close to Blaster, and using it just because of convenience. Mm. I have a feeling that if Max wanted to end this fight faster, he probably could have found elsewhere in the dome something a bit better suited to straight-up murder, like <laughs> the Guandao, mm. the yeah. long-handled machete weapon. Thing. When was the last time we saw that? Where is it? The last time we saw it, Blaster was using it to swipe at Max as he was hanging from the top of the dome. I don't know where it went after that, though. So it's probably just on the ground somewhere. Exactly. Yeah. But I suppose he hasn't really got the time to go and get that. In, in the heat of battle, you probably would just panic and go, right, grab this. Yeah. Swing it. And I think when he swings it as well, this might just be me, but even though it's a different weapon, all I can see is Mel in Braveheart. <laughs> like th- th- this is the this is there's two phases of Mel Gibson. This is the new Mel. He's transformed into the modern Mel here, <laughs> like, visually. I don't know what it is. He becomes like a different person. It's really strange. It's the hair. Mm. It, it, the hair's definitely part. Hair. Of it. Yeah. 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 He's the very model of a modern Mel Gibson. Yes. <laughs> the pattern doesn't really work with that one, but you yeah. get the idea. It works. It works. <laughs> He basically becomes American as well. He's not Australian anymore now. This is the transformation. (laughs) I did actually try, like, looking up. Because I know, well, you know, this is a wig he's wearing in these scenes, right? Because, you know, you do see him with shorter hair later in the movie. So I'm assuming it's a wig, unless they did. They stacked the deck or, like, oh, record all these bits first and then. But, uh, because, you know, I I thought it was a a mane of hair only rivaled by uh, Kim Basinger in our movie (laughs) as Vicky Vale. Oh, yes. Batman. Uh, and, I, and I actually started looking and like, is Mel Gibson's hairdresser on this? Because we covered Kim Basinger's hairdresser in the end credits of that movie, uh, Rick Provenzano, who's disappeared without a trace and we, you know, presumed dead by mm. us. You know, no one else is presuming I'm dead, but we are. <laughs> Caught up in the whirlwind mm. industry of Hollywood hairdressing. Well, the thing is, he was also Alec Baldwin's hairdresser and they were he was working with both of them throughout the marriage. And then once that marriage ended, what happened to Rick Provenzano? Maybe he just... Oh, he probably got given to one of them in the divorce settlement. <laughs> Presumably. And then... The, the... He was one of the assets that got passed along. <laughs> but the... Well, I think he's worked since like 97, though. And I think that was the real like, oh, maybe something happened to him. Mm. And that, that was like, he couldn't have possibly just retired and was living a nice, happy life. Something must have happened to him. <laughs> right. No one ever gets to retire happily. <laughs> But uh, but no, I couldn't find uh, Mel Gibson's hair hairstylist. So I was a bit disappointed by that, unfortunately. I was like, oh, this... And then I guess I go like, I suppose in this one, he doesn't need beyond like the the maintenance of this magnificent hair here. But then again, I, I'm I'm fairly certain that must be a wig. And then when he's you know got it cut, it is it doesn't really matter what his hair is like. Then it's supposed to be out in the you know the, the sticks basically. So. The, wor- the worse it looks, the better, really. Right. Yeah. I find it interesting that Max grabs the hammer and immediately starts going for the head. Mm. Because Blaster is not wearing a shirt <laughs> in the traditional nomenclature of mm-hmm. upper body wear. He's wearing straps. Mm. And so Max, if he takes this hammer and starts wailing on Blaster's chest. He could crush his chest. Yeah. Crack some ribs. Pierce some lungs. Yeah, why, ex- why does he go for the one place the that's armored? <laughs> I think I'll defend this again in... Well, I say defend. It goes back to, you know, my, my feeling that like Max isn't... 
you know, he he's a he's a survivor. He's a scavenger. He can get by, but he's not like a you know that skilled a fighter. Like he got through the test up with uh, you know when he met Auntie and whatnot. But that's just because potentially those guys were complete idiots as well. Yeah. Um. But I, I think like the reason he reaches for the sledgehammer is just out of like desperation. Like I need some kind of weapon. Here's this thing. It's, it's right here. And then his whole thing is that previous in Thunderdome, every other thing he's attempted hasn't worked, and he's just looking to end this as fast as he possibly can. So it's just like if I fully swing this thing into his head, how's his head? It's bound to do some damage, and he gets a couple of good, really good shots in. Mm-hmm. And like you, most people, you think like this would kill them even with the helmet on. Like you'd be able to you know, yeah. penetrate it somehow. So I, I think, it, again, it's all out of sheer just Max panicking, uh, desperation. And, uh, you know, he's not going for the chest or anything because he's just like, oh, just, just, just go for his head, go for his head, go for his head. Like, just basically trying to survive. Out of, and, and out of you know, sheer just like, I need to finish this right now. That's why he's just like fully swinging into the helmet. In all the times that we've seen Max in a medical setting, this is going back to the very first movie, he never hangs out. He never tries to learn much on screen about human anatomy. And so he probably is just going by zombie movie rules, destroy the (laughs) head, kill the brain, and you take care of everything. And that's why he's focusing so heavily on the brain. He's not thinking because he's in a life or death fight, like you were saying, (laughs) oh, all I need to do is destroy his ability to breathe and I will Mm. win. Plus, you can't deny that there is a huge thing about to happen that is going to completely alter the end of this fight that needs to happen. So he needs to wail on this helmet. It's coming. (laughs) As Max is swinging this hammer around, he just keeps hitting blaster on either side. And Master sitting up in Auntie's viewing platform is visibly concerned. He is not feeling good about his chances at this point. Some of these shots as well you see of uh, of Auntie and the and Master and the, the Collector. It's like, um, well, uh, Master for one thing. Like This was the first time I ever looked into him as, a, as an actor. And I had no idea. Like I know you guys will have covered it, but like how far back he goes. Because mm-hmm. he was in like Freaks and stuff. I was mm. like, holy crap. Like That's a real like beginning near the beginning of cinema classic and he was in that i was like holy i didn't realize he was that old yeah in this movie he's in his 70s right oh my god yes and uh once again uh because it's you know it's the way of batman in 89 i do have an everything's connected because he was also in (laughs) the trip which is a movie starring peter fonda and it was written by Jack Nicholson, who, of course, plays the Joker in Batman. So there you go. Wow, nice. It was during Jack's brief period before he became... You know, Jack Nicholson, he was butting around with Roger Corman for years and uh, getting little <laughs> tiny drips and drab bit parts and stuff. And he uh, he did turn his hand for a bit to being a writer and he wrote Head, the monkeys movie. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah and of course, apparently the only reason he called it Head was because he wanted the, the sequel uh, poster to read from the guys who gave you Head. And that was... <laughs> oh. And, uh, and yeah, apparently he wrote The Trip, which is like a really... It's a, a pre-Easy Rider, Dennis Hopper, Peter Fonda movie that's very... It's just all about, like, a psych- psychedelic drug trip. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, uh, the... the uh, what's his name? Um, Angelo Rosito. Mm-hmm. He's he's in that movie. And, like, and, yeah, so there you go. He's connected directly to Batman in that way. So There you go. Nice. 
Although I was convinced that like, when I was going through his IMDb, it's like he's bound to have been in the, the 1966 Batman show. That just seems like they would have had like little people henchmen or something. That just strikes me as something the show would have done. But they did, apparently they did, they did not. You know, at least he wasn't one of them if they ever did. So hmm. This is going to sound like a awful suggestion, but if they had wanted to bring in the ventriloquist villain oh. <laughs> from Batman the Animated Series oh. into the Batman 1966 TV show, they could have just... Just had Angela Rosito with like some lines painted on his face. Yeah, because yeah. the ventriloquist, it's all about the doll. Mm. It's all about the Scarface doll. So you just have Angela Rosito there getting carried around, being like, "Ha, ah, I'm gonna shoot you, see? <laughs> I'm a gangster." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But the, I don't know, for some reason that really reminded me of, I once saw um, a live act with, uh, you know, Kristen Shawl, the lady mm-hmm. who did loads of stuff and then fly the Concords oh, and it. Gravity Falls and stuff. But like, she uh, she used to do a double act with a, a fella. And um, I remember one of the things was like, he'd come out as a ventriloquist and she'd be on his knee as the ventriloquist dummy. And she was just like, sort of like... I th- think we've seen that yeah and then like, she, they bring up people from the audience to pretend like oh this is like a normal ventriloquist zombie thing <laughs> and then uh as soon as like his, he, the ventriloquist was distracted she'd go like hey hey i'm not really a puppet i'm a real person you've got to help me and all this and it turned like really weird and creepy for a bit anyhow <laughs> yeah it's funny round about second 10 where max has started to really land some solid hits on blaster's helmet and we get to see auntie looking on i noticed that max stops blowing the whistle and blaster is still reeling and so i've got to wonder as bad as those whistle blows are to blaster inside of his helmet the clanging of the mallet hitting his helmet must be so much worse mm-hmm. oh yeah like it would just vibrate through your skull Mm-hmm. Which proves the point that Max didn't need the whistle. Like, all he needed to do was find an opening. Yeah. I suppose that created the opening. It did create the opening, which is kind of an argument to make in favor of the whistle, that it's not mm. a weapon. Oh. It created an opportunity, but it, the whistle was still cheating. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, it still is. It still is. That was not part of the arrangement of the mm. Thunderdome. <laughs> Although I'd like to see someone use those earrings you mentioned last minute or whatever, the, the headband slash earring as a weapon. You could really beat someone to death with that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of little bits there. You could probably <laughs> lacerate someone. Yeah. I mean, what's going to turn into like, oh, she can unspool it into like a piano wire-esque sort of throttling device of some sort. Wrap <laughs> someone, yeah. And I, I love her face because she seems to now be really enjoying like just the violence. I think mm-hmm. or maybe maybe she just appreciates that she's found someone who can finally win. Mm. You know, just so smug. Um, yeah, it's smug, and I get there's like a Palpatine vibe to me. You know, like a good, good. <laughs> use your aggressive feelings. <laughs> I will say, too, oh, uh, yeah. some of these shots of the collector, you can see from the, the light backlighting him. I've never really noticed because I was assumed, like, oh, he's completely bald. But you see, like, no, this guy, he's got, like, strands of hair, like, poking oh, out. It's like, oh. dude, just cut him off. What are you doing? He has the worst hair in this whole movie. <laughs> it's so gross. It's so perfect just for the character. commit. <laughs> commit to being bald. It's fine. Being bald is fine. Just don't be in between. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's why I've <laughs> shaved my head. It was starting to go, starting, and I was like, no, no, look, just just call it a day already. Mm-hmm. It's it's better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've seen people cling on in real life though. Like, I remember seeing because my dad was in like a he was in a rock band in the '60s, so like we still get like these Neil Young looking guys showing up the, the my dad's house like, oh, sorry, oh, sorry, no, and all, you know, guys stinking of weed and stuff. 
But like I've seen some of them with like completely domed topped heads, but down to their shoulders at the sides, oh, <laughs> like Hulk Hogan. Yeah, no. and then like at the front, they'll have like the, where the widow's peak is, like one like strand of hair oh, coming no. down. Gross. I was like, no. what are you oh, doing? This is no. so bad. Yeah. But you don't want to say anything. Uh. It's just like what? The, oh, that's uh, what we call them as well. The um, the guy did uh, Galway Girl, Steve Earle, who was in like The Wire and mm. stuff. You look up a picture of Steve Earle. That's a guy. It's like, what? What's he doing? He really needs to accept going bald because it's just this, <laughs> this long haircut of just random bald patches everywhere and stuff. It's like, Ugh. oh my god, dude, come on, get it. Dude. But but again, these horrible strands of hair really suit this character. Mm. It's absolutely perfect for this guy. He's <laughs> he's just horrid, yeah. right? He's more or less the Goblin King from the Hobbit movies. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. If you're talking, uh, you know, about uh, like a, an actual person playing, you know, a puppet in uh, with a ventriloquist, there, he strikes me as if if they ever did, uh, you know, Krang in the the, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles back then, mm. he could have been the body of Krang. Yeah. Like he looks like that thing. <laughs> yeah. Put like a sunglasses on him, and then somehow animate Krang coming out in his stomach. That's the same. That's the same exact thing. I could oh. just do with more Krang in general. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was the that was my whole reason I liked that last movie. It was like, oh, Krang's in it. Yeah. Like it's they finally put him in a movie. There he is. He's finally here. Doesn't matter. The rest of it's terrible. But <laughs> speaking of giant guys who stomp around and are big, Blaster <laughs> is taking just a big old beating, and he falls to the ground. He's knocked back into a seating position. And Blaster is more or less exposed at this point, which gives Max a great opening. He comes in, swings, connects with the bottom of the front of Blaster's helmet, and the helmet lets go of the collar and flies through the air like a ball at a sporting event (laughs) through the air and then just lands on the dirt. And Auntie and the Collector, they jump up and they're all (gasps) shocked at what they're seeing. They look on expectedly and the crowd just goes crazy Mm. and they start chanting. Do you think that when they saw the helmet flying off that they thought the head might be inside the helmet a la Jango Fett? Mm. Yeah. Yes. I bet there were a lot of people hoping exactly that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sitting on the opposite side of the dome. Well, w- watching this minute, I thought that. Mm. Like, <laughs> yeah, the way they show it to us implies that that might have happened. Yeah. Because you look at Blaster and it's like, oh, that must be his head. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, I haven't watched this one in, a, in a, about four or five years, so I'd forgotten. And when when I was watching the clips that you sent me, I... Uh, I jumped out my seat. I was like, "Oh my god, <laughs> this is this is extreme!" I was really excited. Then I realized, yeah, it's not quite it's not quite Django. Yeah. <laughs> nope, it's not quite Mortal Kombat. This is not a fatality. No. Oh, <laughs> finish. Would have been weird though to see like a like a Django and Boba Fett esque scene of like Master like like in silhouette holding the helmet. <laughs> it was like much like everyone was doing an Attack of the Clones, going like, "Is the head going to drop out of the helmet?" Because that seems like that's what would happen. <laughs> As the crowd is chanting, Max is gathering his strength. He's kind of leaning on the mallet for support, but then he gathers himself, picks up the mallet, and he raises it above his head, and he starts advancing on Blaster. And the camera, where in Max's POV, it advances up on Blaster, who's just lying on his back and his hands up in front of his face. And Max gets ready to let the mallet fall, and then Blaster moves his hand aside to reveal just 
a face, just someone that very obviously has a intellectual deficiency mm. and it gives Max pause. Yeah, this is like, you know, obviously what you can take on a simple way is that he's, he's you know, he's, he didn't realize that this was who he was up against. And he's just like, oh, I can't. This is obviously someone who was, you know, uh, th- didn't realize what they were doing. So I can't kill them. That That's what st- steadies his hand. Mm. But I came across it on Google. Apparently, there's major debates about what exactly this is supposed to mean. Because there's people, oh, there's right. people apparently are convinced that this is supposed to be. Oh, it's the the farm hand from Mad Max One. Yeah, Benno. Yeah, and people are like, no, it's it's him. And then like other people are like, no, I think oh. it's just it's just what coincidentally it's another sort of you know similar kind of person. But I don't think it's it's supposed to be literally that same character. Yes. But uh, and again, with the continuity of the Mad Max films, would it even make sense? If it was the same person, because you don't even know if this is the same Max. Frankly, a lot of the time. <laughs> well, oh, Benno, the large man from the first movie, was played by Max Fairchild, mm. um, who was neurotypical. He was an actor. He was in a bunch of different things, and he was just playing up a developmental disorder in that first movie, just to play up the character. And he's actually one of the victims tied to the front of the Humongous's machine in the second oh, movie. Uh, and he uh, goes he went on to star in a bunch of different shows. The role of Blaster was played under the mask by a guy named Paul Larson who was just a huge guy who did legitimately have down syndrome. Uh, okay. There is according to IMDb and this is something that both Julie and I have been trying to confirm. Like there's a different face underneath the helmet and that's the face of Stephen Hayes. Mm. Now, Stephen Hayes was uncredited in the final credits for the movie. He's just under the special thanks section. But if you go on Stephen Hayes' IMDb page, he's listed as also being a character in 1984's The Eureka Stockade, which is a TV miniseries about the gold miner rebellion from 1854. Ah. Where, as usual, it was about the English taxing something. <laughs> as we do. You English. You English. In this case, it was mining licenses and the colonists <laughs> rising up against it. So... <laughs> Way to go, <laughs> John's ancestors. I will say, John, you know what I like about you, English? Getting all of you. Octopussy. I must have seen that movie <laughs> twice. <laughs> oh, yes. Just had to throw in the deep cut Simpsons reference there. <laughs> but in that miniseries, Stephen Hayes plays a character who is also developmentally disabled. Oh. I don't know if it's specifically Down syndrome, because yes, one of those actors did legitimately have that disorder. The other one, I'm not sure. Well, the person who we see his face, which I believe is Stephen Hayes, correct? Right. He has the face of Down syndrome. There are specific facial markers mm-hmm. that come along mm-hmm. with Down syndrome, like close set, shallow eyes, rounded features. Yeah. So I went on NDSS.org, which is the National Down Syndrome Society, and they have a page all about what is Down syndrome. So Down syndrome is a chromosomal disorder because every cell in the human body has a nucleus where the genetic material is stored in genes. The genes carry the codes responsible for all of our inherited traits and are grouped along rod-like structures called chromosomes. Typically, the nucleus of each cell contains 23 pairs of chromosomes, half of which are inherited from each parent. Down syndrome occurs when an individual has a full or partial extra copy of chromosome 21. There's just too much genetic material there. That additional genetic material 
material alters the course of development and causes the characteristics typically associated with Down syndrome. Mm. Not every Down syndrome person has the same individual characteristics. It varies from person to person, but you do see a lot of them cropping up in a lot of different people. As far as commonality is concerned, the CDC here in America report that approximately one in every 700 babies in the U.S. is born with Down syndrome, making Down syndrome the most common chromosomal condition. About 6,000 babies with Down syndrome are born in the U.S. each year. Now, as far as the discovery of the disorder, it's always pretty much been there. It just didn't actually get published about until 1866 by John Langdon Down, who was an English physician. He published his description of a person with Down syndrome, and it was from there that the syndrome earned the name of the guy who published it, which is why we call it Down syndrome. It's actually oh. Down's syndrome like possessive yeah. yeah so when someone says down syndrome it's not multiple instances of the word down it's down apostrophe s yeah oh, that makes sense other people had previously recognized the characteristics of the syndrome it was just down who put it all together and published it and then in 1959 the french physician jerome lejeune identified down syndrome as a chromosomal condition like he's the one that actually looked at the cells and said oh hey look at these chromosomes here okay oh, that's good that's great i've learned something we try to be educational from time to time <laughs> it's like a lot of people will be thinking about some of those tangents that we went on this is like really <laughs> <laughs> I like the message here as well because, you know, I'd say we see his face and Max pauses and he's... he realizes it's not his fault, basically. You know, he, he's been made to be this way. Max is like a, a dialectical materialist. He's analyzing the situation, nature versus nurture. Mm, yeah. He believes in nurture. This guy's been told to do this, made yeah. to do this. He kind of doesn't understand what he's doing. Max is definitely recognizing that this person that he's been fighting has no real malice in their heart or true desire to murder him. And he's probably being reminded of Benno. Yeah, I think his experience with Benno helps him to understand that Blaster is innocent. Yeah. yeah. Although, yeah. again, in that same forum I was on, some people were bringing up like, oh, is this Benno? Some other people are going on like, someone for some reason thought that it was supposed to be humongous, which was... What? Well, they were like, oh, this is, you know, yeah, after he survived, and this is Max recognizing him. And I was like, well, one, didn't he have on the, no. the thing the whole time? How would he recognize him? And like, everything about this was just like, what? What the hell are you talking? And like, all the comments beneath were just like, I'm pretty sure Humongous is dead. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, yes. He took a truck yeah. to the face. I mean, no hockey mask is going to protect mm. you from that. No, that'd be one hell of a hockey mask yeah. if it did. But uh, oh, that's just the way of internet forums, though. Of just you're gonna you're gonna come into some people who are just like, no, man, I don't know what what way you're mm. thinking, but you uh, your view is very very much askew right there. <laughs> All of the spectators in Thunderdome are chanting, kill him, kill him. And we get a couple of real good shots of people just being really enthusiastic. But Max is just frozen. So I'm wondering, like, is it him being reminded of someone that he knew? Is it him recognizing Blaster as having a mental condition? Like, why is Max hesitating here? Oh, I think he, he genuinely recognizes this as, like, as someone with a condition. So he's just, yeah, he does recognize him like, mm. oh, well, he's... He's obviously not in the, the uh, you know the the uh, a mental state for to for him to be actually pursuing me trying to kill me. He doesn't seem to. He assumes like no, th you know, there's no way he was maliciously doing this. 
And it's just a sort of shock of it. I think a bit of a mixture of the shock of seeing this and then realizing, oh no, there's no way. And then, of course, this is exacerbated by later in the minutes, uh, Blaster's smiling at him, mm-hmm. which is obviously not something he, he would do if you know <laughs> if he was trying to maliciously murder him. Right. So I think, yeah, it, it all sort of couples up as being like, oh no, this is, uh, he's obviously been forced into the ring here and he probably, you know, didn't realize how much damage he was doing to people and, and things like that. So I think it's, yeah, it comes back to the, the, the basic, like, oh, Max at the end of the day is a good guy. So he's not going to, mm. you know, cave in the head of, 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 of any of anyone that you know unless he really really has to so i do like the way they drag out the hesitation though it's not mm. an instant no because i think in the in the you know the built-up fury in max from what he was just fighting he he's still kind of in his mind weighing it up like do i kill him yeah <laughs> you know i mean it's still there's a little bit there like he's he's realizing he can't but it's you know, it, it's kind of tense. There's a tense moment there, right? It could yeah, happen. Yeah. You never know. It's good, too, because it gives, like, the audience a moment to kind of register everything that's going on. So they can get... that. You can almost momentarily place yourself in his shoes of been like, well, what would you do? Mm. Would you... Like, if you were in this position, would you... You know, this guy's been trying to kill you for, like, 10 minutes here. Yeah. But and you've discovered this. What what, 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 what would, you, would your own reaction to it be? And sort of lets it settle in for, like, a, a couple of seconds before, you know, his own... Max ma- decides to make his own choice. I am also interested in the crowd. They are chanting, kill him. So, do they not realize or not recognize the physical signs of a mental disability? Or do they not care? I don't think they care. They They just want blood. Yeah, they want to see somebody die. They are in Thunderdome. Two men enter, one man leaves. That is the end of it. Right. Yeah. So they don't care if he's innocent Mm. or not. We'll say extra props to the bearded guy with the eye patch because he is... That's a, that's an yes. extra who is going for it right there. <laughs> <laughs> Giving it his all. I imagine that Max hesitates because he's been fighting this gigantic faceless Hulk. This person that has flesh, but they also don't appear human because they're just covered in all of these pieces of armor. Hmm. And when he goes down to smash Blaster in the face with that hammer, and he sees childlike eyes, it shocks him because he didn't expect to see that. I imagine that he half expected to see Arnold Schwarzenegger from the Terminator movie with half of his face missing and a giant red glowing eye yeah, or something like that. He expected to be fighting a monster. He didn't realize he was fighting a child. Yeah. See, I thought they were going for a similar thing in um in the Last Jedi, right? I won't go I won't go too much into this because it's controversial, obviously. <laughs> but I liked the movie, but I think with Phasma they were going for for that type of thing where they, you know, the mask gets smashed. Oh, you see her eye. You just realize it's just a normal woman. But I I was always under the impression it was a normal woman. <laughs> I, I didn't really. It didn't work as well as it's working here. Yeah. In Mad Max. I don't think it would have it worked because that's the first time anything like that has occurred to me. I was always under. Some assumptions like, well, everyone knows it's Gwendolyn Christie, so yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, that's what I mean. But I think you were meant to be shocked. Yeah, <laughs> like Max is shocked. Here. Yeah, I like the idea. I think Phasma just didn't act like enough of a monster. Yeah, for us to doubt her humanity. Yeah, we were shown her humanity, and we we're like, well, yeah, we know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We know she's only human. It's, you know, in minutes where we've been talking a lot about Django and Boba Fett as well, like Phasma just has a bit of the Boba Fett thing about her of been like really cool looking character that they've not utilized well. Like everyone wanted more Phasma 
and you just didn't really get it. They're just like unless she comes back again, which may you know may well happen because you know until you see a body, then everyone's still alive technically. But uh, yeah, it's just that same thing. Some people could argue like, well, maybe it's a tribute to Boba Fett by having a cool looking character that you've essentially wasted. <laughs> I'm like, that's not a good tribute. That's not a tribute anyone wants. But it's done to great success here in this movie that we get to know this monster type character as a monster. He has no individuality. He's not even his own person. He shares a person with somebody else. Right. Mm. And then all of a sudden, at this pivotal moment of his death, we see that he is just an individual. Going back to the Krang idea, it's like discovering that Krang's robot Barty that he hangs out in has a personality and feelings. Yeah. Oh, that'd be good. You almost get the sense that should Krang be ejected from the robot body, and then the robot body is just hanging out like playing with letter blocks or something like that, that the Ninja Turtles would have a hard time destroying this robot oh, because yeah. it's so simple. The turtles could take him in and he could be one of the crew. <laughs> he could be a walking uh, pizza oven. Oh, there, oh my God. There an episode oh, of the old Turtles no. cartoon where like Shredder banged his head and then he thought he was one of the turtles or something and they took him in. And he was just hanging out with him, like, you know, all right, dudes, and all that. Oh, no. <laughs> that sounds like an awful idea, so yeah, I completely believe it. It's one of those things it. that's in the back of my yeah, mind. Definitely that happened. <laughs> but I'm not checked, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to go look straight after this, I'll tell you that. <laughs> Off to the side of the Thunderdome, we can see that Jedediah and the pig killer are sitting there staring at this situation. And we go from them up to Auntie's booth. Like everyone is in shock of what's happening right now. But the collector, Auntie Entity, and Iron Bar are not interested in this whole mercy thing. Yeah. The collector yells out, you know the law. Auntie yells, this is Thunderdome. And Iron Bar, no creativity, just yells, kill him. Yeah. That was shocking. This is our only dialogue of the week we've had. More or less. Yeah, it is. It is. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Iron Bar does often seem to be a hanger on. (laughs) I'm here too. Yeah. Like the collector and Auntie are like the primary people in the society. And then there's Iron Bar. I always love that in a movie, though, where there's like a, a villainous character who's really, you know, over the top. They talk a lot and they have like a really sniveling sidekick who just pops up and goes like, mm. yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, they do it in cartoons yeah. all it's the time. It's kind of like like we had in Batman with uh, with Bob, only Bob was way cooler. Yeah. Because everyone everyone loved Bob and he he genuinely had your back. <laughs> this guy's like anti-Bob. <laughs> oh, anti-Bob. Although he looks weirdly kind of like him. <laughs> Maybe inspired Bob. Although I, I will say I do uh, wish there was a sitcom called, now called like you know, and then there's Iron Bar. <laughs> just be like what he's up to. And he's just coming home to like the the missus, and he's just like, oh honey, you know, uh, auntie's coming around. We gotta cook a dinner, <laughs> and then like all random shenanigans happen and stuff. He loses his weird headpiece thing, <laughs> like with, oh I can't go into work tomorrow without this, and the boss will have my neck and stuff like that. <laughs> I can imagine Iron Bar coming home at the end of the day. And he takes the iron bar that holds up his mask and he pulls it off and he hangs it up on a hat rack. <laughs> <laughs> and then and before he goes out in the morning, he puts it back in this little backpack 
pack thing, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> it's like every every day we get something like, let me tell you, the best part of my day is when I take that iron bar out and then put my feet up and have a nice martini. That's 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 that just gets you through the day. Ooh, sounds good to me. <laughs> so in all the years that Auntie has been running Thunderdome, do you think this has ever happened before? Someone refusing to kill the other person? I, I think it maybe it, it has just by the urgency of her response because it's like they're instantly on him. Like, you know, you know the law. And then she's instantly, this is Thunderdome. Like, she's seen, like, oh, people have steadied their hands before and not finished the deed. So she's really like, no, this is the, not again. Go do the thing right now. That, mm. that, that was my feeling towards it anyway. I thought maybe it happened in the early days and it was a disaster and the whole thing fell apart, basically. So this time, that's not happening. In this iteration of Thunderdome that's been going for however many years, that, that it will never happen, in her mm. mind. It kind of reminds me of a situation from Flash Gordon, mm. where you've got Flash and Prince Baron, and they are in the hall of the Hawkmen, and they have to go on that little platform and fight. Oh, yeah, the spiky platform. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so as they're fighting, Prince Voltan, played by Brian Blessed, is there with the little controller, and he has the ability to pitch and yaw the platform around. He has spikes that come up. He can force one of them to die. Yeah. Mm. Auntie does not have that ability because this is the post-apocalypse they don't have crazy sci-fi technology <laughs> although that's not crazy sci-fi technology that would be so easy yeah you just dig a pit underneath the thunderdome and install a trap door yeah oh that'd be cool i don't think master is all he's cracked up to be no with his inventions and technology and electricity like i don't know auntie and the collector seem to talk him up like he's the reason this place is more sophisticated than other places. But really all he's doing is making a few light bulbs turn on. Right. <laughs> hey, that's pretty impressive to these people, I suppose. They, they haven't really got much going for them. Have they? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I want to see the Thunderdome... Like I want, I want him to revamp it and have like traps and spikes coming out of the ground and pits. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Like a BattleBots arena, <laughs> exactly like that. Yeah, something like that. The the grinding wheels at the edge. <laughs> be like oh, John ringing up George Miller, going like, I know you've got like what two completed sequel scripts, The Fury Road completed, <laughs> but yep. what about this? <laughs> Mad Max, right? Back to Thunderdome, all right? <laughs> I could see that legitimately happening. I think he might bring a Thunderdome into a future movie. Because yeah. it, it's fondly remembered. That, I know a lot of the movie is, and as I said, this one in particular. The other two, much more so. Uh, but this scene, everyone likes this. Everyone <laughs> I mean, likes the Thunderdome. Let me think yes. of it like, you know, right. Mad Max, back to Thunderdome, brackets, no kids this time. <laughs> <laughs> But Tina Turner has to come back. Oh, oh my God, totally. Yes. I think Tina Turner is busy. There's a stage show that she's producing. Please tell me it's a Mad Max show. In? In London, oh, I want to say. I was hoping you were going to say Las Vegas. No, it's more of like a biography show. Mm. I think it's more or less a stage version of the movie that Angela Bassett starred in. Oh, yeah, the What's Love Got to Do With It? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that, that's the thing, though, because like, Tina Turner is genuinely really good in this. You guys, is there any... She doesn't really... She didn't really go on to do that much acting afterwards. Is there a reason that she's given in interviews that you guys have come across? or Not that I've found. It's definitely her biggest role, though. Yeah. But it just seems like maybe she's like, no, I've, you know, all I want, ever wanted to do was play like a grand villainess in a Mad Max movie. And I've done that. So, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to go back to being a huge mega pop star. 
Yeah. Tina the Musical is going to be done at the Aldwych Theatre in London. It looks like... The best seats are available from £15 if you're doing the lottery. You can book tickets online. That's cheap. It doesn't look like it's actually running right now. It's it's hard to say because I'm looking at her website right now and it's like, I don't know what's going on. But it's presented in association with Tina Turner. Like, she's very deeply involved in it. Yeah. Oh, we're going to have to see so. it now, Niall. <laughs> right. You'll have to go and report back to us and let us know how it is. A bonus episode. I was worried that you were going to try to make us buy tickets on air or something. It was like, right, you guys, 15 pounds, go on, put in your credit card details. Like, <laughs> do you, do, do you need like, my bank account number, my sort code? My... <laughs> yeah, just, just mention them on air. We'll, we'll edit, edit it out and post. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'll definitely edit out that information. No, I wouldn't make you do that. <laughs> As we get to the end of this minute, we get one final shot of Max holding the mallet. He has lowered it at this point, and from behind, we hear Master yell out, no. He is somehow gotten down from Auntie's platform and gotten into the Thunderdome. I don't think it's impossible for Master to slip through the bars of the Thunderdome. I just don't see how he's getting down from that platform on his own, but he's running up to the situation, interceding on Blaster's behalf. I imagine it's a stage dive. I like to think he jumped off and then everyone just like, all right, pass him down. Pass him down, everybody. That would be amazing. Much like, like Wayne's World, you'd see like two like heavy metal heads coming the other way. Like, oh, excuse me, excuse me. <laughs> excuse me, pardon me. But that pretty much brings us to the end of the minute. We're going to get into a situation next week where we see the aftermath of this decision. But in the meantime, Niall and John, why don't you tell the nice people on the internet where they can find more of you? Niall, I know this is normally my thing. But oh. it's our last minute. Would you like to take it away? I'm so used to John doing it on our show. Whenever I'm on guest spots by myself, I'm like, oh, God, what do I say? Uh, I'll do it if you want. Oh, no, no. I, I, can, I, can, I can take the, 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 the learning wheels off eventually. Uh, no, um, we, uh, well, we are Batman at 89. We are current. Well, we've completed looking at Tim Burton's 1989 Batman film and we're moving on uh, might have even started by now but we'll be doing within the year 2018 at some point Batman Returns uh, and as well as various hiatus projects that we'll have in between the two movies you can find us on Facebook and you know Twitter and Tumblr and uh, Instagram and all that it's all under Batman at 89 so if you have a format in which you wish to view us or listen to us because we're on all the podcasts catchers as well just type in that title and we should pop up uh, and if we don't find us some way and we'll provide the episodes for you somehow i don't know <laughs> <laughs> we'll hand deliver them on a vinyl record yeah. Yeah. this is why john does the end thing because it always ends up with <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to start making too many promises <laughs> Definitely track down John and Niall. They do excellent work. They've done an amazing first season, and the best is yet to come because those Batman movies just get more ridiculous as you go on. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. You think the Mad Max series takes a weird turn by movie three. Oh, just wait. <laughs> oh, just yeah. wait. We're excited, and thank you for the praise. Mm -hmm. No. Yes, oh, yeah. thanks, <laughs> thanks for saying that. Yeah. Yeah, we're just glad you came and spent some time with us. If our listeners are looking to spend more time with us this week, we are going to be off till Monday, but you can always go to our Patreon where we have our bonus show called Anarchy Road. This time around, we're doing week 12 of our coverage of the Steven Spielberg movie Hook. 
<laughs> which you guys are so fond of. <laughs> I have hey, no I idea like about it. this. Like, I'm, let me go. I'll come on that to, to tell you what I think about Say, Hook. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> uh, this time around, we've got Tinkerbell trying and failing to control the Lost Boys. Rufio is going to show up and draw a line in the sand to try and divide the loyalty of the Lost Boys. And Peter is going to let a bunch of children just poke and pull at his face, and it's weird. Well, that's because kids, and particularly groups of kids, are assholes. So that's why that's <laughs> That is a bold oh. statement. <laughs> it is not inaccurate. <laughs> right, 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 right. But as for us, we are going to come back on Monday. We're going to see Max start breaking rules just left and right, from refusing to kill Blaster to revealing the fact that he's working for Auntie. It's not going to end well for anyone, despite Max's protests. So you have that to look forward to. We'll see you then. The Mad Max Minute Podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. Mad Max Franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. And our outro music is We Don't Need Another Hero by MilitiaVox of MilitiaVox.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute, like us on Facebook by searching for Mad Max Minute, and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com where you can check out our Tee Public storefront by clicking the store link join our patreon by clicking the support link or make a one-time donation by clicking the donate link thank you for joining us for minute 36 of beyond thunderdome we'll see you next time Everybody say-